Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1 in your Bible. We are starting a new series today, and we are going to begin right here with the first chapter. And so if you are there, and I hope you are, I want, to, want you just to follow along as I read the entire first chapter of Joshua. We're going to dive right in. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, to the reef, river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, Toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command them, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of this land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commands and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you open our eyes as we dive into this historic narrative of your people entering into the promised land. Open our eyes to see your glory, to see your magnificence, to see your power and your sovereignty and your leadership not only in their lives, but also in ours. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. I wonder if uh, you are paralyzed by fear this morning. I wonder if fear is gripping you. 
Biologists say that fear is not only a universal emotion, but fear is the very first emotion that's developed within humans as well as beasts, which means the whole of creation is under the dominion and gripped by fear. Now, this also means that God created us with the ability to have fear. He created us with the ability to have a good and godly and holy fear of Him, a reverent kind of fear. However, as sin has distorted everything about us in the way that we worship Him and the way that we are in our being, sin also distorted fear. And so then we fear not God, but we fear man. I wonder if your fear of man is paralyzing any part of your life this morning. We fear man. We fear fear that man will physically hurt us, and so we avoid certain neighborhoods. We don't go to certain countries. We don't live in certain areas. We fear that man will expose us, and so we avoid being honest, and we lie. We're quiet about our faith because we're afraid that man will reject us. We do nothing. We hide. We don't write that book that we thought about writing. We don't take that job interview that we thought. We don't apply for that school because we're afraid that we might be rejected. And so it's easier to have no no opportunity than it is to face the rejection of man because we are gripped by the fear of man. We're, We're afraid of the way men think about us. So therefore we cannot be sharpened by godly critique. Critique for us becomes criticism. We can't take it. This affects our church life where we we are afraid to expose ourselves and so we avoid intimate relationships. We avoid small groups and house communities and one-on-one discipleship times. We're afraid of losing praise of others and so we do not confess certain sins. We're afraid that men will continue to reject us, that men may not see fruit in us, and so we avoid things like commitment and church membership. The fear of man paralyzes humanity. Humanly speaking, the reason Joshua exists, the reason we have this book is because of the fear of man. Forty years prior to what we're about to get into, about 37 to 38 years prior, Israel was commanded by God to go into the land and to take the land, the promised land that God was going to give them. And if you know the story, they sent in how many, how many spies? Twelve spies? Two spies came back and said, I think we should trust God. I think God will give us the land and we should be courageous. The other ten spies came back terrified. And their fear spread to the entire generation of Israelites. And the people said, no, we are not going to take the land. Because we are afraid. And for that reason, that entire generation never walked into the promised land. Fear gripped A people, it gripped an entire generation, and where we're at now is some 40 years later, 
the sons and the daughters of that, that doubting generation who has now died off, the sons and the daughters are now entering into the promised land. And so let's look at verse 1. We see right there, after the death of Moses, so the final person from that doubting generation, their leader, Moses, died. It's hard to underestimate the importance of Moses for the people of Israel. And so some, since some of you are new to the Bible and you may not know Moses, a brief little introduction. Moses was the one who led the people of Israel out of Egypt. So that's the first part of God's amazing redemptive act with his people of Israel. Through Moses, the law was given. Moses became the literal voice of God on earth. And now Moses is dead. And they can enter into the promised land. And the reins are being passed to his assistant. We see right there in verse 2, his, or verse 1, his assistant, Joshua. Now, who is Joshua? Forty years earlier, about 40 years earlier, remember the 12 spies that went in. Ten came back terrified. Two came back and said, you know what? I think we should trust God on this one. I think we should be courageous. Joshua was, Joshua was one of those two spies. And when the people were gripped with the fear of man, I don't think we can fulfill the mission that God has given us because of the men that are there. Joshua tore his clothes and cried out, I will read it to you, do not be afraid, he says. We will devour them. Their protection is gone. And he says, the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Yet they were paralyzed by fear. And the work of God in their life was stunted and paralyzed. But now Moses is dead. The reins are being handed over to this faithful, courageous man, Joshua. And look at verse 2, how God says this. In verse 2, he says, Go over this Jordan, that's the river, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. So this is part two, out of Israel, and now part two of the saga of into the land. And by the way, he says, this is the land that I'm giving, giving you. Like I promised this to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I renewed that promise with Moses. And I am sovereignly, powerfully, miraculously going to give you this land. Although at the same time, it requires risk on their part, doesn't it? It requires some faith, grace-driven effort on the part of Joshua and the people. Many will risk their lives. Many of them will lose their lives in this mission that they're about to take on. Now this brings us to the problem with Joshua. Blood. Annihilation. War. Mark Dever said that Joshua is one of the hardest books to understand. How can we, on this side of the cross, read Joshua? How can we understand what's going on? What is this? How do we make sense of the bloodshed? Complete people groups being wiped out. Cities being shut down. How do we make 
sense of that. One theologian said, Joshua is not for new Christians. Now, some of you are new Christians. And so this series is coming with like a really huge warning label, like handle carefully or something like that. One non-Christian writing for a popular website said, cynically, he said, read Joshua and see if you're still a Christian. Read Joshua and see, like once you read about that God, he would say, see if you're still a Christian. Now what he's saying, a couple things, one thing he's saying is, if this is not true, if what we see in God here is not true, well then... Yes. I don't know what that was. If, there's a, if anybody smells smoke, let me know. Uh, but do not fear this morning. Read Joshua and see if you're still a Christian. If this is not true, well, then it breaks everything down. If this is how God is, then it breaks everything down, is what he would say. It ruins the entire thing. He, he would, he, the, this blogger goes on to accuse Joshua of, as, as, and Christianity as a whole of, as presenting a God of genocide, a God that loves bloodshed, a God that loves war and loves wiping out ethnic groups. Is he right? Is God pictured here as a God of genocide? Is God pictured here as a God of ethnic cleansing? Now, while that question is not uh, quick, a quick answer, it, it is a question that can indeed be answered. As Christians, our, our answer is based on two fundamental convictions. Number one, our answer is based on the fundamental conviction that God is indeed the creator and the owner of all. What this means is, is that if, God, if, if, if there is a God, and if God is indeed the creator, then it means that he is the owner of all and he can distribute lands as he sees fit. So if God has a people that he chooses for whatever reason and he desires to give them a certain land, well, God has the right to do that because he is the creator of all life and he is the owner of all. So that is one primary sort of fundamental conviction, but it even goes deeper than that, because that conviction alone won't satisfy many of you. The second conviction that our answer is based on is this. Sin should be judged. So we as Christians believe that sin is against the nature of God and that God is right and just in judging all evil and all sin. There's a little verse in Genesis, if you were to skip back there, Genesis chapter 15, 18, that sheds a whole lot of light onto the book of Joshua. 400 years prior to this, 400 years before they moved in to the land of Canaan, God is making his promise to Abraham. And what God says to Abraham is, you will receive the land. You need to know that. This is my promise to you. Your inheritance will receive the land, but not yet. Why? God actually is moving Abraham out of the land. Why am I leaving? The, why am I not taking the land right now that you have promised to me? 
God said, your inheritance will come back here. And let me read it to you in chapter 15, verse 18 of Genesis. He says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back. Look at this. For the sin of the Amorites, which is a clan of the Canaanites in the land of Canaan, the sin, the sin of the Amorites has not yet received, reached its full measure. So what we see here is that there is a judgment of sin that's about to happen in the land of Canaan. And we're seeing here in Abraham, way back 400 years prior to all of this, that God is a patient God with evildoers and sinners. As in the days of Noah, he relented his judgment and he relented his wrath. Now listen to this, for 400 years he was patient with the people in Canaan. For 400 years, not only was he patient, but he allowed his own chosen people to go into slavery in Egypt. He allowed his own chosen people to wander the wilderness because he was being patient with those in Canaan. By the time this right here here in Joshua, the time comes to move into the land. By this time, the cup of sin is full. They have reached their full measure, historically speaking, within the land of Canaan. There was ritualized prostitution that was seen as sacred. There was child sacrifice happening. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5, let me amazing. Don't you love meeting in a school? Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5, uh, let, me, let me read this, or I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 18. Let me read this to you to describe the sin of the people of Canaan. He says, for the people of the land before you did all of these abominations so that the land itself was unclean. So the picture that we have here of, of the land of Canaanites is that the, the, the actions of the Canaanites, ritual prostitution, child sacrifice, the action of the Canaanites was so evil that the land itself is described as being saturated in the blood and in the evil and in the sin of the people that lived there. And as a humbling note then for the Israelites who are moving into this land, in Deuteronomy 9.5 it says that you're taking the land not because of the uprightness of your heart, but because of the wickedness of the nations that live there. As God rained fire upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, as judgment, righteous and holy, and good judgment of His wrath, in the same way God judges the land of Canaan. And His tool, this time, is his very own people, to execute his judgment. Now, what we can then say is that nobody can use this to justify any kind of injustice. What we see here is something very particular to the redemptive purposes of God and a particular judgment upon a people group. And we're going to come back to all of that in a little bit. The broad teaching that we can see from here, the big reflection is this. As they're entering into the land, we see that evil truly 
does exist and that evil will be destroyed. That evil does come under the, the, the judgment of a righteous and holy God. As we get into Joshua, um, this is a narrative, it's a story, it's a true story. It's, it's, it's actually an epic story. Epic being that there is like this, 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 this sense of drama to it. Um, uh, like the Ravens game last night, there's this sweeping, dramatic conclusion. There is, in this sense of it being epic, there is this highlighted uh, sense of right and wrong and good and evil. This is good, this is holy, and that is evil. This is to be blessed, that is to be judged. And so as we get into Joshua, what I want to encourage you to do is to imagine, use your imagination and place yourself here in the story and picture it, see it like a movie. Imagine what it was like to be there and to feel these things. And then we will pull back and we will be able to say, wow, so that is the same God that is speaking to us today. That is the same God that is moving through us today. So, are you ready to dive into Joshua? After my very long introduction, the rest of my sermon's rather short, I think. So, 40 years of waiting. 40 years of just longing for this moment to enter into the land. The anticipation. No longer will they be nomads. No longer will they be wandering. But now they can settle and they can become a people that will reflect the glory of God. And so here God says, go. He gives them the green light. Now the only thing standing before them are walled cities and armies and nations. This is that moment that you have been waiting for and anticipating, and it's also that moment that you have feared. Do we have it? Do I have what it takes? Am I strong enough? Am I smart enough? Am I prepared enough? The first thing that God destroys here in Joshua is not a city or a wall or a people the first thing that God destroys is the fear of man. And I want to point out three ways that we see in the call of Joshua how God destroys the fear of man. We're going to sum it up in three different statements. Number one, your mission is not your mission. It's God's. Your mission is not your mission. It's God's. We see this in verse 5. No man, he says, shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then here is this statement that I think is the key verse for the entire book of Joshua. I will never leave you or forsake you. And then in verse 6, so be strong and courageous. We see God repeat that line three times. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. You are the vessel. You are the pipeline that I'm using which the, the water of my promises will flow through and my redemptive purposes will be complete through. 
This is not your mission. This is my mission. And I am merely using you to accomplish my purposes in this world. And so therefore, be strong. Be courageous. It's my timing, my plan, my idea. You see, I've always, I believe, read Joshua wrong. I've always gone to the book of Joshua and and read it or even maybe sometimes heard it preached in the sense that Joshua is the hero. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, right? Jericho. Well, Joshua didn't even fight the battle of Jericho. Who did? You see, what we see in Joshua, and this this is what I think is the point of Joshua. The point of Joshua is that God is in control, that God is sovereign, that God is holy, that God is just. The hero of Joshua, this this book, is not Joshua. The hero is God. God is the main character, and God is the one who is doing the mission. Carla, your mission is not your mission. It's God's mission, and he has provided for you and moves through you. Your mission, as you go into your workplace, as you, as, as, as you enter into your families, as you seek to be Christ to those around you, your mission in this world is not your mission. You are on God's mission, and it's the power of God through you. Paul, in Philippians, on the other side of the cross, seeing everything through the lens of Christ and seeing now that our mission is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, Paul said, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. You are on the mission of God. Do you see how this destroys the fear of man in Joshua? Do you see how this could destroy the, the fear of man in you? Who then do you have to fear if God is for you? Who can be against you? The second statement that sums up how God destroys the fear of man in Joshua, the second statement, God rewards faithfulness. In verses 7 and 8, we see two very long verses about the law of God. He says, only be strong and courageous. He repeats it again. Being careful to do all that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Now, that's the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Everybody say Pentateuch. This is the scriptures. This is the law. And what he's saying is, is follow the law. He actually says meditate right there in verse 8. That word meditate literally means to mutter. To just constantly, I mean, the, the, the word of God just constantly on your lips. You're constantly muttering it as someone comes along. You mutter it to them. As, as your soul is weary and depressed and d- d- discouraged, you mutter to your soul. Why are you downcast? Hope in God. Keep the law, keep the scriptures at the core of your being. Do not turn from them to the left or to the right, he says. Mutter it the scriptures all the time, night and day, and look what it says in verse eight, or verse 8. He says, for then you will make your way prosperous. So do you see now how Joshua actually has some action in this plan? This breaks down this dichotomy that we often live, with, live in, which is either God is completely in control and does the work, and I just kind of sit on my hands 
and just expect God to do everything for me. Or, God is useless. God's standoff. And I have to do everything. I have to be the one to act and to move. What we see here in the call of Joshua is that God is doing the work and God is sovereign and God is giving them the land, but He will use the faithfulness of His people to do His purposes. And God rewards that kind of faithfulness. One of the most courageous people I've ever known in my life was a 97-year-old woman who had been faithful to God for decades. God rewards faithfulness. Not turning one way or another. Jonathan Edwards said this. Jonathan Edwards said, give me 100 people. Keep everybody else. Just give me 100 people who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. Such alone, these people alone will shake the gates of hell and set up king, the kingdom of, of heaven on earth. What Jonathan Edwards is saying is just give me people that fear God, that detest sin, that fear the destruction that sin brings, that could care less about what man can do to them, that are faithful to God, that are obedient to God. And these people, he says, would shake the foundations of hell. Do you hate sin? Do you hate and fear the destruction of sin and the destruction that sin can cause in your life? Have, has God restored within you that holy and beautiful and natural fear of Himself? That holy, reverent fear? Is your greatest desire to be successful in the eyes of men or to be faithful in the eyes of God? God rewards faithfulness, and faithfulness destroys fear. Thirdly, verse 9, he repeats it again. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. And then look what he says. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God destroys the fear of man in Joshua and then subsequently the people of Israel by simply saying, I am with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm in the door. I'm staying in the house. And I am with you wherever you go. There was a father who was talking to his little boy about going on a trip overseas, a family vacation. And he was explaining to the little boy what they were going to be doing. And he said, you're going to have so much fun. And the little boy starts to cry. And the father's like, why are you crying? What's the matter? And the little boy says, I'm going to be afraid without you there. And the, little, and the father like, grabs the son. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to be there too. I'm going with you. You see, to know that our Father is with us destroys any kind of fear. It's just simply that simple. I am with you. I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. Now, as the story continues, Joshua relays all of this information to the people of Israel and then they in turn 
look to Joshua, and they say, wherever you send us, we will go. Wherever you send us, we will follow you. And what we will see in the upcoming weeks is that they do follow, that God is faithful to them, that God indeed gives them the land. I don't want to give away the ending, but I'm doing that right now. God gives them the promised land. But here's the problem. The remainder of the Old Testament, pretty much, is about how Israel fails. They get into the land. They're there. Yay! We're here. And now we are to be a reflection to the world of the glory and the manifestation of God. We are to follow Him perfectly. We are to follow the law perfectly. And enjoy His presence among us. And they fail at their mission. They turn from God over and over again. They rebel from God. They run from Him. They turn to other idols. They're not faithful to the Father, but rather they are running to any, the, the, the bed of any man who is willing to pay their cheap price. They are an unfaithful bride. And as a result, as the Old Testament wraps up, we see that God hides His presence from His people for 400 years. Waiting. Longing for something better. You see, what Israel needed, and this is, I, I believe, the point of Joshua, and what I want us to see as we get into this, what Israel needed was not Joshua. What Israel needed was for God Himself to come into this world and be for them the better Joshua. Yeshua. Jesus Christ. And what we see in the Gospels is a new people, a peculiar people, who are looking to this new leader. And what they are saying to this new leader is, wherever you send us, we will go. Wherever you go, we will follow you. Who you love, we will love. Who you serve, we will serve. We will be on mission for you. And this leader accomplished the mission of God in reflecting to the world God's glory. He was completely obedient and completely faithful to God in every way and in everything. And what he showed us is that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But this leader went to battle with what it was that controlled the Canaanites and controlled those of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that is sin itself. The grip of darkness on the souls of men. This leader went to that battle and he hung on the cross and he took that wrath upon himself. And did for us what no other Joshua could do. And this leader rose from the dead and then sent his people on mission. And that's where we are today. Following that leader. In Hebrews 13, this Jesus gives us 
his promise. And he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. As you go to the highest mountain, as you go to the darkest valley, as you go into your various jobs and difficult jobs, as you go into difficult marriages and try to repair and restore what's fallen apart, as you go into your families, as you go into your difficult neighborhoods and you move into neighborhoods that are hurting and you go to countries that are hurting, as you go about your mission, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And then it says in Hebrews 13, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Take my life, Lord, and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Pray with me. Father, we give our lives to this leader, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the fact that Christ came and fought for us the fight that no other man could fight. And that is to conquer what has held us in darkness, the grip with, uh, of sin and death that has been on our souls. And we have been freed from that. And we thank you for that gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.